So again, happy Thanksgiving. And uh, now Thanksgiving's behind us, and now we're on to Christmas. Now, what do you think about at this time of the year? College students look forward to finishing the fall semester. Others anticipate extra time at home with family, maybe listening to Bing Crosby, watching some classic movies. Some can't wait to shop or receive their presents and hope for a white Christmas. Now, if you're more of the formal religious type, you know that today's the beginning of the Advent. I think observing a religious calendar is in the realm of Christian liberty, so I say each to his or her own. But I found it interesting that some of the earliest Advent observers thought it was entirely appropriate to be penitent and even practice fasting. It seems like the complete reverse of today's customs, at least in the society. Most of us loosen the belt around the holidays, probably eat too much. I'm guilty of this. Personally, I love my wife's cream cheese cookies. I call them pillow cookies. Not only do they look pillowy, it transforms my belly into its pillowy likeness. Then with much self-loathing, I walk the walk of shame to the local gym. And <laughs> but again, back then, many believers decided to prepare for Christmas with austereness, repentance. What do you think about that? Does it seem strange to you to be gloomy and sad at this time of the year? Yet, if we were to follow the trail of progressive revelation in the Bible, you'll see that serious reflection is precisely the way to prepare for the arrival of Christ. You'll see that as we arrive at the final words of Malachi, also the final words of God in the Old Testament. So let's turn there. To Malachi 4, 4 to 6. Malachi 4, 4 to 6. If you are using the Pew Bible, you'll find it in page 675. If you don't have a Bible, please take one from the pews um, as a gift from us to you. So Malachi 4, 4 to 6. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him, in Horeb were all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with the curse. So we have three verses here to wrap up Malachi. These correspond to three ways to prepare for the advent of Christ. These are applicable both for the first advent and in anticipation of the second. And we can put these principles to work at all times of the year, not only in the next few weeks, but we'll need eyes of faith. And to help us remember, I'll use the word look as a way of emphasis and reinforcement. So one, look back in the word for God's demands. That's verse 4. Look back in the word 
for God's demands. Two, look forward to God's judgment. That's verse five. Look forward to God's judgment. And three, look around for God's reconciliation. Look around for God's reconciliation. That's verse six. So first, look back in the word for God's demands. So here's the final imperative in the entirety of the Old Testament. Remember, when it comes to this last command, the Lord desires more than mere head knowledge, though certainly not less. I mean, how would you like it if God simply had his promises in mind but never executed them? Local floods today would be global floods. There'll be no exodus out of Egypt, no conquest of Canaan, no restoration of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Thank God that he remembers, and not just in his mind. Now, we, on the other hand, as fallible humans, need constant reminders to remember. We got to-do lists, calendars, post-it notes, To help us remember, God, we have his word translated into our own language. And what a great blessing that is. This is the legacy of the Reformation. And we were born after the invention of the printing press. So we don't have to handwrite copies of the scriptures for distribution. We have the Bible at our fingertips in a book format and even in our smartphone apps. It's easier than ever to remember God's word. Now we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but here in Malachi 4.4, there's special attention paid to the law of Moses. You know, Moses is responsible for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Of course, the last part of Deuteronomy was finished by someone who followed him, but Moses, responsible for these five books. And, but Malachi is being even more specific here, and he's zooming in on that section that begins in the middle of Exodus. Recall that the Israelites, after being freed from the bondage of Egypt, arrive at Mount Horeb. That's when Moses, their deliverer, becomes Moses, their lawgiver. And there's plenty of laws. We got the Ten Commandments, case laws, do's and do nots, you shall and you shall not. You got instructions and details concerning the tabernacle, sacrifices, priesthood, ritual cleanness. This part of the Bible is where many reading plans get derailed. Initially, readers do well in Genesis. Sure, there's some long lists of names and genealogies, but there's also plenty of action. Creation, the fall, Cain and Abel, Tower of Babel, the, uh, the flood, sorry, I reversed the order there, but <laughs> Avengers of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So many, right? And then onto the first half of Exodus, there's so much Hollywood material. I can't count how many times I've watched the Ten Commandments around the holidays, Charlton Heston, and Hugh Brenner going at each other as Moses and Ramses. 
Then there's that animated musical released in 1998. It's called The Prince of Egypt. They got some catchy tunes and memorable numbers there. But who can forget the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea? But there's a reason these movies leave out most of the statutes and judgments commanded for all Israel. Besides the Ten Commandments, it can be difficult reading for some. Maybe even these days very offensive or sometimes even obscure to many. Even as a Christian, you may say to yourself, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Gentile Christian living in the New Testament. Why do I need to learn all these rules that apply to Israel, a theocratic nation? This building's not a temple. We're not pitching a big old tent, the tabernacle out there. We're not slaughtering lambs and setting up the Levitical priesthood. So again, why should we look back in the word for God's demands? It's a good question, and I'll just give you two reasons, though there's undoubtedly more. One has a vertical dimension, while the other is horizontal. One helps us relate with God and the other with people. One's more about catechism, and the other's more about evangelism. First, we remember the law of Moses because it helps us know God better. Let's see if I can use an illustration. Even if you married your spouse at a relatively early age, let's say 18 to 19 or in your early 20s, there's still a lot that you need to learn about him or her. Where was your husband born? Where did your wife grow up? What kind of son or daughter was your life partner? To really know your spouse, you have to do a lot more than know him as your or her as your husband or wife. There's a lot in the past that relates to today. I married Ira just before she turned 30, so I had a lot to learn about her before, those, before our marriage. There's some similarities in our relationship with God. Of course, the comparison breaks down in that God does not change. But we change as we get to know God better. We are worshiping a being who has revealed himself in history. If you really want to know the Lord, you have to do more than just know him as he relates to you. God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before he appeared to the apostles. He spoke in times passed to the fathers by the prophets before he has spoken to us by his son in these last days. Don't you want to know? And remember what God has said in the past. It'll enrich your relationship with him now. And here's another reason we look back in the word for God's demands. It has to do with how we present the gospel to others. The law of Moses helps us understand the bad news of our sin so that we can appreciate the good news of Jesus. Using the law, we can pinpoint the problem so that we desire the solution. We show sinners the festering cancer of sin so that they beg for the cure of the physician. Charles Spurgeon offers a good illustration of this. Quote, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. 
The law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make way for it. End quote. And this is what Paul did. He taught that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law is holy, just, good, and spiritual. It shows us we're unholy, unjust, evil, and carnal. The way of the master, which we went over earlier this year, is a good curriculum that helps us apply this principle in evangelism. As you try to win souls to Christ, don't hesitate to open up the scriptures and begin with Moses. Tell people they failed to meet God's standards before telling them to meet God's son. So during the season, why not prepare for Christ by looking back in the word for God's demands? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And if we truly understand what the law says is true intention, we'll be grateful for Jesus. And instead of dreading the day of the Lord, we can look forward to God's judgment. And that's the second way to prepare for the Advent. In Malachi 4.5, we have the fourth and final behold of this book. The first one was in chapter 2, verse 3, as God confronts and rebukes the priests. The second and the third beholds were at the beginning of chapter 3, And chapter 4, the behold of chapter 3, verse 1, had to do with who? The messenger who prepares the way for the second greater messenger, the messenger of the covenant, the Lord whom they seek. The behold of chapter 4, verse 1, had to do with when? The day of the Lord, coming to burn up the proud like stubble, leaving neither root nor branch. Here the fourth and final behold takes elements from both the second and the third before it. Not only does chapter 4 verse 5 speak of a person, it speaks of the day that follow his appearing. It's clear what happens on that day. The great and dreadful day is that day burning like oven. It's cruel with both wrath and fierce anger. The day of vengeance, destruction from the Almighty. See this reference all throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. Now the more difficult task is figuring out the identity of this Elijah. The first option is to interpret the phrase Elijah the prophet as Elijah the Tishbite, who first appears in 1 Kings 17. This Elijah the Tishbite lived 400 years before Malachi. He was an opponent of Ahab, the northern king of Israel and husband of Jezebel. But like Enoch in Genesis and those alive at the appearing of Jesus, Elijah did not die a natural death. A chariot of fire, a horses of fire appeared, and the Lord took him up in a whirlwind into heaven. There's the hope of many, even to this day, that this same Elijah will return before the final day of judgment, Such expectations reflected in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. There's a thought that Elijah the Tishbite would come supernaturally out of heaven, 
Such spectacle was what the crowds at Christ's crucifixion was looking for. But what makes the matter complicated is the person and ministry of John the Baptist. We read a little bit about him earlier in the service. And in an earlier sermon on Malachi, we already saw in Malachi 3.1 that that passage directly applies to John. He is the one who prepares the way of the Lord as his messenger. This is confirmed in various parts of the New Testament. But the New Testament goes further. God sent his angel Gabriel to tell Zacharias that his son, John, will go before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's Luke 1.17. Later, Christ himself confirmed that John the Baptist is Elijah. As Jesus spoke to the multitudes, he told them, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. That's Matthew 11, 13 to 14. Fast forward to after John was executed and after the transfiguration, Jesus predicts that before his return, Elijah is coming first and restoring all things. But then right after that, he says, Elijah has come already. And they, the people of Israel, did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So in my view, Elijah in Malachi 4.5 is a title that's transferable from person to person. An illustration of this idea is the use of the name Caesar in Roman history. Caesar is originally a family name, but later it became the title of the emperor. In the same way, Elijah was originally a person's name, but later it became an office to be occupied. And let me tie up some loose ends here. So you may ask, what about John 1, 19 to 27? There the priests and Levites from Jerusalem asked John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? And John answered, I am not. My interpretation is this. John's not denying that he could not hold the office of Elijah the prophet. He's simply denying that he's Elijah the Tishvite, born 900 years ago in the era of the monarchy. As I said already, this was the expectation of many those days, and John and Jesus disappointed some of those expectations. So let's bring this all together. Because there are two advents of Christ, there are two forerunners of Christ who resemble Elijah. The obvious difference is that the the office of Christ is occupied by Jesus alone, whereas John the Baptist played the role of the first Elijah, preparing for the first coming of Christ. Now, if we play revisionist history, and let's say John was welcomed as Elijah, it's certain Jesus would have been welcomed as Christ. But in reality, both were rejected and killed. Yet that did not derail God's plan, because through that rejection, Jesus bore the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. 
Before that return, another Elijah figure will appear and prepare Israel. Now, I won't be here on earth when this happens. I'll be watching from heaven because I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. But from where I stand now, I can study the end times and look forward to God's judgment. So I can turn to Revelation 11 and locate this Elijah figure. He and another witness will be active for three and a half years in Jerusalem, prophesying and performing miracles. The Antichrist will kill them, but after three and a half days, they will be raised from the dead in the sight of everyone and taken up to heaven. Studying such things is good for Christian. I encourage you to do that. Now I need to address the non-Christian for a moment. I know that was a lot of detail, but keep this in mind. And ask yourself, how is it that I and other believers have such confidence to look forward to God's judgment? I mean, it says it's great and dreadful. Well, it's not because I'm holier than thou. I won't go far in my reading of the law of Moses before I fall on my face. As I mentioned earlier, under the first point, God's demands in those statutes and judgments reveal that I am a lawbreaker. Just take the Ten Commandments. I'm guilty of blaspheming God's name when I take it in vain. Lying, committing adultery in my heart, stealing, on and on. The Bible says whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Curses everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So what chance do I have to get to heaven by my good works? Zero. And if God judges us at the first sight of our sin, we're doomed to hell. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But this is where we see the patience and mercy of God. He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When Christ appeared on earth in his first advent, he did not begin the day of vengeance of our God. He first proclaimed, the acceptable year of the Lord. And so this first advent was about freeing us from the power of sin and paying for the penalty of sin. Jesus lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law and the prophets. He is lamb without blemish and without spot. As John the Baptist proclaimed, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died on the cross as our substitute, enduring God's wrath to pay for the consequences of our faults, mistakes, and errors. He rose again on the third day and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return on that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Before it's too late, I pray all of us in this room would repent, turn from ourselves, turn to Jesus, place our hope of heaven in Christ alone. This is the way to prepare for the second advent of Christ. Heaven is given by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Those who trust in Jesus can now look forward to God's judgment because our judgments are done deal at the cross. So are you ready for that day? The Bible instructs us to examine ourselves as to whether we are in the faith. Test ourselves. Somebody once asked, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty? What proof is there that we passed from death to life? As we look at the final verse of the Old Testament, we see one fruit of repentance that points to the authenticity of our faith. That leads us to the third Advent principle. Look around for God's reconciliation. As Israel's relationship with God's restored, interpersonal and intergenerational relationships are also restored. We see what Elijah is destined to do in the future. And so let's read verse 6 again. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with the curse. It's remarkable that with all the miracles associated with the name of Elijah, the drought, the famine, raising of the dead, fire from heaven, the most memorable work associated with that name will be family reconciliation. That in turn will lead to blessing on earth. Something the fathers and children here go beyond one generation. It's possible that Elijah's ministry will bring unbelieving children to the faith of their forefathers, ancestors, and patriarchs. That will bring the nation to Moses, priests to Levi, sons of Israel to Jacob, etc., But I think that verse 6 is more about uniting families living around the time of the second advent. During the tribulations, uh, the, the great tribulation, thousands in Israel will repent, convert, trust in Jesus as Messiah, become God's servants, and be sealed with God's protection. This is described in Revelation 7. I believe... The 144,000 in Revelation will consist of fathers and children uniting to spread the gospel all over the world. They will be spurred on by Elijah, we talked about him earlier in Revelation 11, who, as I mentioned earlier, will be ministering out of Jerusalem. None of this wide-scale family unity took place in the first advent because, again, John and his ministry were rejected. Israel as a nation did not unite under God's rule or Christ's rule 2,000 years ago. Christ brought a sword, not peace. He was a stumbling block, not a foundation. And our Lord himself warned, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. At this stage in history, the hearts of Israelite fathers and children will not unite in Christ in a large scale at least. So what relevance is there for us today? Israel is blind in the church age, the great tribulation still in the future. Here's my application of this final verse. I say the intergenerational unity and reconciliation in Christ, though not happening in Israel, is possible in the church 
I'll repeat, intergenerational unity and reconciliation in Christ, though not happening in Israel at the moment, is possible in the church. To a limited extent, we already enjoy the new covenant blessings that extends to the Christian family. It's possible for families to be knit together in Jesus. Fathers can bring up their children in the training and admonition of the Lord, while children can obey their parents in the Lord. So yes, family unity and peace are possible, assuming, of course, its members exercise genuine faith in Jesus and do the will of his Father in heaven. That's my prayer for Nathaniel, my son. I hope that the Christian's core identity as chosen generation can cross boundaries, the thick line between Gen X, that's my generation, and Gen Alpha, that's his generation. There's something even more powerful and lasting than even our shared DNA or memories. The name of Christ is more unifying the surname. The Lord suffered more than holiday meals. Because of the gospel message, we can look around for God's reconciliation in the church as we wait for the same reconciliation among the families of Israel. Until that day, we should do two things. First, as fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers, determined to pray for your children, and grandchildren, that the Lord would save them all. No one else in the world occupies your unique position. Be faithful in your role. Remember what we read at the beginning of the service in Psalm 145, verse 4. Oh, I read it. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Secondly, and this is more relevant to the passage If family members are already saved, and you're saved, why not enjoy the blessings of God's reconciliation? Perhaps you've grown distant over the years. Maybe you hold to very different opinions in politics. Maybe you thought about COVID, other hot topics of the day. Fiery outbursts and heated debates. Maybe they made the warm meals cold. Literally. But if Jesus can break down the middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, surely he can remove what separates you from your children and your parents. Again, assuming we're all Christians here. Perhaps less time should be spent on disputable matters. Spend more effort on what unites your Christian household. So let's do what it takes to gather and remember his advent, his first advent, and look forward to his second advent. To help you in this, uh, let's turn to our final song for today. Jesus, strong and kind. Let's remind each other why we can celebrate the advents of Jesus. We can run to Christ because he has come to us and he will come to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read it regularly, 
We're not dependent on someone else reading it for us. And Lord, we can remember uh, what you have revealed throughout history. We thank you that you are God who is involved in our lives. Or just uh, first giving us your word so that we can live by it, see what you demand. But Lord, even as we fall short of those demands, that we have your son who give, give us, offers us forgiveness as we repent. And Lord, we look forward to that day of judgment that's coming. Day of great expectation in our hearts. And we're thankful that we have the promise of, of, your, uh, of your son's second coming. And Lord, we thank you that as we turn to you, as our eyes are on you, that we can also see the fruit of your kingdom, of what you do in our lives, which is to bring people together under the headship, the lordship of your son. And we're thankful for that, and that that is the true way for us to exist and have peace together as we submit to you, as we worship your son. And we thank you, and we pray in his name. Amen.